Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of The New Statesman, and you're listening to The New Statesman podcast. Today, we're bringing you a special recording from the Cambridge Literary Festival. In November, I was joined by Isabel Hardman, assistant editor at The Spectator, and Phil Whitaker, a GP and our medical editor, to discuss, can we fix the NHS? You can find more great discussions from Cambridge Literary Festival online. Just follow the link in the show notes. In the year of the 75th anniversary of the NHS, with strikes across the sector, record hospital waiting lists and long A&E waiting times, there is no better time to speak to these two writers who are deeply invested in fixing our healthcare system. In Isabel Hardman's book, Fighting for Life, she tells the story of the NHS and its challenges through 12 political fights, from the battle to set it up in the first place, through reproductive rights, right up to the pandemic, shining a light on how the service works and what's going wrong today. In What is a Doctor, Phil Whitaker takes us to the front line of medicine, the GP's surgery, using stories and case studies from his 30-year career to give us an insight into how medical movements, political interference and societal changes have transformed the role of the doctor. Now, first of all, I'm going to hand over to each of our writers to do reading from their books. So I think we'll go to Phil first. Good evening, everybody. I'm just going to read the first few pages of, uh, of chapter six of this book. Um, it's called Dr. Google and the AI Revolution. I'm sure you've all got their latest album. <laughs> and as Anoush was saying, the, the books actually um, really tell stories about patients, but I'm using those stories to kind of generate thought and then I do a little bit of discussing about some of the issues that I'm raising. So that's the kind of way it's narrated. Gary was unshaven and restless. He kept pressing his hands to different places on his chest as he tried to describe the pain he'd been experiencing and the difficulty breathing and the sick feeling and the lightheadedness. At 22, these were unlikely to represent serious heart or lung problems. Unlikely, though, by no means impossible. But I'd skimmed his notes before calling him through. They were the same symptoms he'd been experiencing a year or so previously. I'd extensively investigated and found nothing worrying. The last time I'd seen him, I tried to broken the understanding that they must represent physical manifestations of anxiety. I'd started him on some medication and arranged to see him a few weeks later. 
hoping that if he were responding, it would increase his confidence in my diagnosis. He hadn't returned. Lola, his girlfriend, sitting in the other chair, was hostile. He keeps getting fobbed off, being told there's nothing wrong. Gary's notes contained records of multiple 111 contacts. As soon as he mentioned chest pain and breathing difficulties to the operator, high drama would ensue. A paramedic ambulance would be dispatched, which would rush him, blue lights flashing, to the nearest A&E, where doctors clad in scrubs would do all manner of tests, after which he'd be told they were normal and he'd be sent home. I'm not fobbing you off, I told them. There's definitely something wrong and I really want to help, but I need you to work with me. I started to explain why, if he kept phoning 111, he was likely to remain stuck in the same unproductive loop. I know the symptoms are really unpleasant, I said. I guess at times it must feel like you're about to collapse. Gary nodded, his lips pressing together. But I can absolutely assure you, you're not going to. There's no sign of anything like that. This provoked a dismissive huff from Lola. You're saying it's all in his head. You're not imagining it, I said to him. The symptoms are real and they feel horrible. But I do think they're caused by stress. Some people experience anxiety in their minds, but for others it comes out in the body. All that adrenaline pumping round, it causes symptoms just like you get. Those tablets didn't work though, Gary pointed out. They take a little while, I said. You never gave them long enough. We talked briefly through what was going on in his life. Gary had wanted to trace his biological father, from whom he hadn't heard since he was a kid. It had caused huge ructions with his mum and stepdad the previous year, and all the turmoil had proved to have been pointless. When Gary finally tracked him down, he was too late. His biological dad had died some six months before. And now Lola was pregnant with their first, and Gary was facing the prospect of becoming a father to a little one of his own. I was sure his physical symptoms must reflect repressed grief and abandonment being mightily stirred. There was zero appetite for psychological therapy. In the end, they left with a prescription for another medication and agreed to return in three weeks. I wonder whether they would. Everything they read online, googling chest pain and breathing difficulty, told them there must be something serious going on. And that belief was reinforced by the dramatic response to his 111 calls. Sirens, monitors, blood tests, ECGs, albeit that nothing ever seemed to come of it. There was such a contrast between those experiences and my low-key attribution of his symptoms to psychological ill health. The confusion that Gary and Lola must feel. Who were they to trust? What if it was a heart problem, a lung pathology, and nobody put their finger on it yet? The newspapers were always screaming about how flawed the medical profession can be. Four doctors missed meningitis. GPs failing to spot cancer. I must look like the next bungling idiot about to generate another set of scornful headlines. Little wonder it was so hard for them to know what to believe. Thank you, Phil. Isabel. I really want to know what happens next. <laughs> Buy the book. Um, this is from the, um, f f from the first chapter, actually. Um, so this is chapter one, holding on for something new. They called her Anaira, Nye for short. For her whole life, she was going to celebrate two birthdays, her own and that of the health system she was born under. Both have lived to an age that few would have taken for granted at the time she took her first breath. And at the time she took that breath, one minute past midnight, 
it was the start of her life and that of the National Health Service. Anira Thomas was the first baby born into a system of health care, which meant her mother wasn't going to have to pay the doctors and midwives for assisting her labour in a small Welsh cottage hospital. It meant that she would benefit from free vaccinations and free medicines for all the normal childhood illnesses that would come along and which had, in the past, often signalled the end to a short life. For her mother, it meant proper health care too, at a time when women tended to see their middle age as the start of a decline due to poor eyesight, bad teeth and devastating untreated injuries sustained in childbirth, if they made it through labour at all. But the National Health Service has come to mean more than just free healthcare, transformative though that has been. It is part of our modern British story. Of all the threads that make up the welfare state, this is the one we have chosen to cling on to most tightly. It is the one we boast about to visitors from overseas, often with little regard for what their health system is like by comparison, because it is our automatic assumption that our NHS is the best in the world. We like to use that possessive pronoun too, our NHS. Politicians can scarcely get through a week without praising it, just in case someone doubts their commitment to our NHS. Within our NHS, there are nearly two million people working across the UK. There are countries smaller than our health system. There are the nurses who held the hands of the COVID patients who died alone, watching their families say goodbye over FaceTime as the ventilators kept them going. There are the doctors who made a point of examining their AIDS patients without gloves and the princess who helped them to make a point about this devastating and misunderstood illness. There are the porters who, along with perhaps the chief executive, are the only people who really know their way around the entire hospital and who have wheeled mothers clutching the tiny, wrinkled hands of their newborns before taking the body of a 90-year-old to the mortuary. Just as we are all either going to get cancer or have someone close to us who will have it, so we all either know someone who works in the health service or are ourselves a part of this small nation. Most of us entered the world in an NHS hospital. Most of us will die under the system's care too. We know the sacrifices NHS workers make in their personal lives, in their own health, even with their very lives, to the extent that in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, we took to the streets to applaud them once a week. Yet it is not just the individual stories of those workers, doctors, nurses, managers, porters, paramedics, cleaners and receptionists that make us feel emotional and possessive about our NHS. Health workers are venerated in many countries, but we are exceptional in our love of the system, or at least in our love of what it stands for. Anira's birth wasn't the start of that story, but it was a symbol of the fights that had brought the NHS into being on the 5th of July 1948. Her mother, Edna, was engaged in her own fight that night. The fight to slow down her labour. Normally, when the nurse calls the doctor to say there's a head visible in the labour room, the first thing they tell the mother is that it is time to start pushing. But at three minutes to midnight, on the 4th of July, 1948, <laughs> this doctor said something else. Edna, you need to wait. <laughs> it's not long now. Don't push. 
Just hold on, Edna. <laughs> when the hand on the clock moved past midnight, he let her get going. It had been the doctor's idea to keep Edna back. It was his idea to name the baby Anira. She should be named for the man who made this possible, he suggested to Edna as she looked for her newborn in the nursery. After the man who allowed her to be born here, for free. After Nye Bevan. Call her Anira. Anira was the first person born under the National Health Service and the first person to enjoy an entire lifetime of its free care. In her book, Hold On Edna, she writes about what healthcare meant to her mother. If my father had been injured just a year before my birth, we'd have starved. And if one of my siblings had fallen seriously, critically ill, they mostly likely would have succumbed to their sickness. Edna has lived with this knowledge all her life, hearing the stories of limbs withering away, cancers left untreated, hacking coughs slowly turning into something more sinister until one day they'd stop and there'd be silence. That changed for everyone in 1948, and so many decades later, it is still not something many British people take for granted. This is the story of the National Health Service. Like all life stories, there are a fair few ups and downs. Anira herself has had good times and bad, saying the NHS has saved her own life repeatedly. The health service hasn't had an easy life and has needed intensive care over the years too. We love what it stands for, just as we admire the principles of our friends, but we do also know that even the best people fall short of their own standards sometimes. To understand a life properly, you can't gloss over those bits in the way other treasured national institutions like Desert Island Discs can politely sidestep failed marriages that the interviewee doesn't want to discuss. So, this is a biography, not a hagiography. There will be chapters with scandals, false starts and embarrassing moments. There will also be heroism, quiet determination and extraordinary triumphs against the odds. It is a combination of these two aspects of a character that makes a life. And examining both will help us understand not just how we got to where we are today in the 21st century NHS, but also who we are as a society and what we have come through. Thank you both so much for those brilliant readings. Um, and I want to start off with something you both pick up on um, in your books, which is the place of the NHS in the British psyche. You mentioned that possessive pronoun, Isabel, our NHS. We never say our highways, England. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, Not uh, even if you're from the north. No, no. <laughs> um, and Nigel Lawson described the NHS as the closest thing the English have to religion. But what you're both writing about in your books is, is the way that that faith that we have in the NHS has started to decline. So, Isabel, you make the point that patients today are starting to lose faith with the NHS in an unprecedented way. And Phil, you mentioned in your, in your reading, actually, the fact that, you know, Dr. Google will sometimes be used in favour of, of what the actual doctor in front of them are, are saying to them. And part of that is the loss of the family doctor, which is a big focus of yours in the book. So can you talk to me a bit about how the public are feeling about the NHS and healthcare more generally at the moment and what impact that is having? Yeah, I mean, the, the British Social Attitudes Survey does show that the public are losing confidence in the ability of the NHS to treat them in a timely fashion, but what they are not losing faith in uh, are the principles of the NHS. And so you end up with journalists who tend to be on the right of politics um, writing pieces saying, we've fallen out of love with the NHS, which 
we haven't. And then they say it's time for another model, and they never really suggest what that other model is or how it would be better or how it would cost less or anything like that. But I think what, where we are is having looked at all the many crises that the NHS has had ever since it, it started, and it has had this sort of peaks and troughs of crisis throughout its history, I think we are in its worst crisis yet. We are in a place where people are in a two-tier health system again, uh, where they don't think that you know, the worrying cough is necessarily going to get, even if it gets uh, referred on by, by Phil, it might not get treated in time, they might, their symptoms might progress, their illness might advance, or they might have to pay for their treatment in a timely fashion. And that's not because they're you know, loaded, it's because they've got to go fund me. Um, and that's one thing that we've really seen the growth of is um, people resorting to private health care, not because they can afford it, but because they think they can't afford to wait. And if you look at a comparable crisis that was much smaller, both in terms of numbers and political um, clout, it was around the turn of the millennium uh, in the new Labour years, where when I interviewed Tony Blair and Alan Milburn and the various people who were around at, at the time, their worry was that the NHS, that the public wouldn't fall out of love with the NHS to the extent they were saying, well, we're paying for our private health care already, so we're paying for this twice, and it's, you know, the thing we're paying for through general taxation is no good anymore. Mm. I think we've, we've reached a, a worse point than that. Um, so that's, that's a really cheerful opening answer. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, do you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. I see it. Um, I mean, I've got two patients I can call to mind in the, in the space of the last sort of year or so who have, you know, these are not, my practice is not in a wealthy area, so it's an, an ex-mining town. Um, and I've had two patients who paid for joint replacement surgery out of virtually the total of their life savings. Basically because, I, I can't remember exact ages, but in your late 70s, if you're going to spend between a year and two years in pain and not able to do anything you enjoy, that's probably could be all your life, or certainly a measurable percentage of it. Um, so, you know, there are people paying for treatment um, who shouldn't be paying for treatment. Yeah, I, the barometer, the barometer is the private medical insurance industry. So the, the peak of, of NHS, the kind of public satisfaction of the NHS was around about 2010. And the, the numbers of people saying they were extremely satisfied were, were, have never been seen, about 70% or so. Um, and I was in practice at that time, and I, I can remember... Uh, so basically, then, if I... Number one, patients could get to see me, OK? And number two, if I needed them to see a specialist, that would happen within six weeks. And if that specialist decided they needed some kind of treatment, that would happen within 18 weeks from the time I'd referred them. So it was very responsive. And I remember a patient who told me that he had this new health insurance policy that had been geared up that would only kick in if the NHS didn't meet those timescales. And what was happening at, at that time was the private medical insurance industry were absolutely petrified because people were not buying insurance because the <laughs> NHS was doing the job that they needed to rely on. So they were inventing new products to, to try and sort of uh, adapt to that new reality. And just at the moment, uh, I don't know, people are probably tearing their hair out, they just cannot process the applications fast enough. If you switch on your television and watch a game of football or something, all around the ground on the adverts, you'll see the adverts for private companies, uh, medical insurance companies. So the private sector is having a brilliant time. And so that tells you what you need to know. And I would just kind of make the point that no political party will ever go to the general election with a manifesto that says, 
we're going to privatise the NHS. <laughs> they just won't do it. But what we are seeing is the de facto privatisation. And exactly what Blair and, and Brown were, were very, very worried about was Britain turning into what we do see in countries like America, where those who've got employment and um, insurance get extremely high standard healthcare, and the public health system is a rump for those in the very lowest kind of echelons of society. And that's, that is where we are moving at the moment. And I guess it's not just that it's like attractive to patients, it's also attractive to your colleagues who are not treated well by the NHS, and then who see the lure of a better salary, better conditions, hell, maybe even a rotor that allows them to book time off for their wedding or something, you know, <laughs> basic like that. And they think, well, you know, I've done my NHS service, I'm going to jump ship. Yeah, but well, private practice in, in the UK is an odd thing. So mm. th there aren't that many, there are some, but there aren't that many doctors who work exclusively in private practice. So most will have NHS practices and do private work. Certainly in general practice, I have, I, I mean, I worked near Bath and two years ago, there were no private GPs in our area. There are now five. So, uh, and there are uh, other places where GPs are setting up private practices full time. So that's changing too. But yeah, the, the drift is going that way, and unless it's arrested, that's where we are headed, basically. Do you need a gift that's priceless? Liberal, free-thinking journalism has never been more important. Give the stories and the perspectives that matter with 20% off our gift subscriptions this holiday season. View the link on the show notes to save 20%. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I want to talk a bit about the politics because your book, you know, is, is structured around political fights over the NHS. And Phil, your book mentions a lot of the impact of political interference over the years. And we'll come back to New Labour, but I wanted to start with Margaret Thatcher because it's interesting in your book, Isabel, you detail how she sort of chickened out of switching to a private insurance model, but introduced a very managerial mm. uh, structure into the system that hadn't existed beforehand, which I thought of as a real irony because the left today insists the Tories want to privatise the NHS at any chance they can get, and the right are the ones who see it as having a bloated management. Yes. Um, so can you tell us a bit about what changes she brought in and how they have sort of perpetuated into today. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the sort of... I wouldn't say it was the earliest sign that Liz Truss was a bit mad for me, but when she <laughs> advocated abol abolishing an entire tier of uh, NHS management, I thought, do you realise that the woman whose poster you've probably got up in your bathroom actually introduced general management? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I think this is one of the really fascinating things about the politics of the NHS is um, the fixation with the idea that... Uh, there is a secret agenda to privatise the health service. I think what you were talking about, the de facto privatisation, is, is a different thing, but the possibility that someone in a bunker somewhere is plotting a sell-off. Um, and 
I think there's a sort of division within the Conservative Party between those who are more of the kind of Institute of Economic Affairs persuasion, who think this, this was one of the greatest mistakes this country made. I can't believe people are still so doe-eyed about this healthcare system. It fails people. Why don't we have another system? And then those more pragmatic Conservatives who see that the public love the health service and think, well, we've got to make it work within that. And one of the early people, the early Conservatives to realise this was actually Enoch Powell, um, who I'd say probably had a bigger impact on the country in other ways and, and more negative. But he was, he was a fascinating health minister. Um, Thatcher was very much of the first persuasion that this, you know, this health service doesn't work. It's, it's managed badly. It doesn't make sense. Why can't we have a national, you know, an insurance system instead? something Ken Clark said to me when I interviewed him, that you know, she wanted to go the whole hog and privatise the lot, were his words. Um, but she never could, because even though she had private health insurance, she boasted about having private health insurance. She also saw that British people loved the service, and her biographer, Charles Moore, was very clear that she never stopped being frightened of the damage that the health service could do to her if she got something wrong. Um, and so she introduced general management because she saw the health service had, I think it had had an increase in manpower of something like 20,000 people since she'd um, been elected and she wanted to work out what was going on. She commissioned Roy Griffiths, who um, was the, I think he was the deputy chief executive of Sainsbury's and he came back saying, well, no one knows who's in charge in hospitals. He had this famous phrase of, if the lady with the lamp were walking the corridors of a hospital, she'd be asking who is in charge. <laughs> Um, and so they introduced general management. She then also wanted to make the health service more efficient and to work in a more economically rational way. So you understood how much it cost to, to operate on people in, in different hospitals so that there were incentives not to be wasteful. Um, and again, she knew that she couldn't go as far as she wanted to, but she introduced what was known as the internal market. So there was a split between the providers of healthcare and, and, the, provide, and the purchasers of it. But even then, she was absolutely terrified of the impact that those reforms might have, to the extent that she was you know, really on the eve of them being unveiled, panicking about them. And even after she'd stopped being prime minister, she was still buzzing in to see John Major to say, oh, I'm quite worried about these internal market reforms. Wow. Um, so... We today, I think, see Thatcher as an ideologue, but actually I think that shows that firstly she was a pragmatist. It also, to me, says so much about the, I think, completely misplaced and quite unhelpful obsession with this secret privatisation agenda. Firstly, because it distracts from the actual problems that the health service has, many of which are inflicted upon it by politicians. Um, and secondly, um, actually, the, the, the other point is just that if the Conservatives wanted to privatise the health service, do you not think they might have done it by now? Because at that point, Thatcher had huge majorities, a Labour Party that was, well, you know, we've recently seen another bin fire in the Labour Party, but the Labour Party was completely consumed with its own problems. No effective opposition. They could have done it, mm -hmm. but they knew they couldn't because the public would never forgive them. And that's I think that's a lesson that some of them still need to learn today, but most of them are very aware of. Thanks. And um, Phil, in... Isabel's book, she describes the state of the NHS by the time New Labour arrived, with people dying on trolleys and corridors in a service desperate for investment, quite reminiscent of some of the scenes that we see today. And you started out just before that time, 30 years ago, so I wonder if you remember how things changed when New Labour came in, for the good and sometimes for the bad. You know, they, they brought in the target setting, a very top-down and sometimes bullying culture. 
Yeah, they were a mixed bag, for <laughs> sure. Um, so what did they really do right? They did invest money. And any time I hear somebody sort of say, oh, the NHS, it's a bottomless pit, you can just keep tipping money and it'll just keep soaking up and you'll never get there, it's not true. Those kind of performance figures that we saw towards the end of the, the noughties, I think we, we described them as, don't we? They were the result of probably pushing up our percentage of GDP spent on the NHS by a couple of percent. But working then in the, in the health service was an absolutely brilliant time. And the kind of quality of care we were able to give both in general practice and also in hospitals were, was fantastic. So that was something New Labour got right, was that they, they kind of targeted the right level of investment. And actually, broadly speaking, through the developed world, it doesn't really matter how much is paid for by taxation, how much goes out of people's insurance policies and things. You, you roughly speaking, spend about 10% of your... GDP on looking after yourself health-wise, um, and, and New Labour targeted that. Um, I think some other things they got right to a degree were they did actually understand that to try and tackle the problem, it was going to take a very long time if they just focused on public service NHS. So they brought in, I think quite controversially, they brought in private sector provision in a way that the Conservative government probably would never have dared to do because it were, all, the, all the shrouds would have been waved. So we had sort of the beginnings of what are called independent sector treatment centres run by the private sector doing sort of routine NHS work but really hammering through the waiting list. So, you know, those things were good. I think I ended up, you know, much as I adored working in the NHS during that period of time because it really was the heyday through the entirety of my time. Um, I, I ended up getting exceedingly cynical with, with right. New Labour because they were so control freak, kind of micromanagement. And, you know, targets are helpful in some respects, but they also always create unintended consequences and they kind of reduce what we're doing in the health service down to sort of metrics and you've got to meet the metric and you kind of lose track of the people. So I ended up getting quite fatigued really with, with uh, the, the micromanagement and in, in primary care where I sit um, we, we have this kind of micromanagement system that effectively persuades me to stop viewing you as a human being and as a recipient of a pharmaceutical product basically. There's a lot of um, financial um, incentivization and coercion to sort of treat people in certain ways so mm -hmm. I got quite sick of that. I'm going to make a confession here. Please don't repeat it outside this room. <laughs> but actually, one time in my life, I voted Conservative. And that was in 1990, when they said, no more top-down reorganisations in the <laughs> NHS, because I was so sick of... Uh, uh, sorry, 2010, because I was so sick of what New Labour was doing. Right. And I thought, I could just do with some politicians that would just let us get on with the job we're trained to do. <laughs> There I learned a very important lesson, which is never trust what politicians say. We had the mother of all top-down reorganisations shortly afterwards at Andrew Lansley. Anyway, there we are. Well, yes, I mean, this is the dilemma for politicians who are going into an election fairly soon, is what, what do they promise? There's not that much money um, sloshing around. And as you've said, past reorganisations of the NHS have been considered disastrous. So, you know, what do you think they could change as well to make uh, the NHS better for patients. I think you'll find, Phil, that Andrew Lansley actually kept his promise to the world because it was no pointless top-down <laughs> reorganisations. <laughs> okay. uh, that was his... That was that the was thing he really clung on to, going, no, but those other ones were pointless. Mine, mine has a point. I missed that crucial... <laughs> yeah, that crucial, crucial definition. Yeah, I mean, it, ever since the sort of 80s, the NHS has been reorganised repeatedly to the extent mm. that 
I interviewed so many people for the book who had had the same job at like 10 different organisations, all with a slightly different iteration of sort of commissioning structures and so on. And I think we have, I think the political debate around the NHS has matured in the past few years on two levels. One is that we don't now have this phony debate that doesn't reflect the public's priorities about you know, privatisation by the back door. Mm. Um, that was my Andy Burnham impression. Um, but you also <laughs> now also have an acceptance that reorganisations can often be deeply inappropriate. They damage institutions' ability to actually do their job and that they don't address what is one of the major structural issues with the NHS and has been ever since its creation by necessity, which is that it is so focused on acute. And that extract that you read, Phil, where every time your patient mentioned chest pains, the algorithm, you know, the red lights start going and they get red-lighted to hospital. And I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, the number of times we've ended up inappropriately in A&E with him climbing all over me, invisibly not in need of A&E, but because we've been sent there, because the system is so focused on acute and so not focused on primary or you know even preventive health care that's I think now where the debate's starting to go within politics so it's something that Labour under um, John Ashworth when he was shadow health secretary and now we're streeting have been talking an awful lot about preventive health care but it's expensive to do it properly and if you want to do it properly but not close hospitals then you have to continue funding acute as it is at the moment and fund preventive and community medicine in a way that's never been funded properly before you have a huge recruitment and retention crisis in general practice just for starters and politicians hate closing hospitals because i mean even when the hospitals are literally like killing people people don't like closing hospitals i've got an anecdote at the end of the book where in the hartlepool by-election in 2004 Labour campaigners picked up that there was real angst in the constituency about the local hospitals. So they went to John Reid, who was then health secretary, and said, can you guarantee that this hospital is going to be saved? Because otherwise we're going to lose the by-election. And he says, well, very well. They will have the worst hospital in the country. But yeah, sure, fine, I'll, I'll guarantee it can be safe. Because all rationality goes out of the door when a hospital closure is, is mooted. And that's the sort of political problem we now have, which is you can say all you want about preventive medicine being important, but it's a bit like what we've had over the past 10 years about politicians going, oh, it's very important to treat mental health in the same way as physical health. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean you're actually going to get anywhere with it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's my big fear, because we all know that Rachel Rees is not going to give away streeting oodles of cash for both acute and primary. So I'm not quite sure how they're going to square that, unless he really likes having fights with local MPs about their hospitals, <laughs> which would be an interesting hobby for him to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, Phil, how about you? What changes would you like to see? Because the, in your book, it's, it's, it's very much a defence of the family doctor and the continuity of care that you get if you know your mm. own GP for the whole of your life. Um, and there seems to be an assumption now, I think, in politics that that can't be saved. And, you know, you, you condemn that lack of ambition. I think. Yeah, well, we're... Um, hoping that that assumption is, is changing. Um, continuity care um, essentially sounds like just a nice thing. You, you know your doctor and your doctor knows you, but um, we've, we've now got a huge body of really, really robust evidence that says that's basically how you get the most cost-effective um, healthcare out of your budget. Coincidentally, it also happens to be better for patients and better for staff too. So I think it actually it's an ingredient of, of, of rescuing the situation. But basically, I'm going to be really broad brushstroke here, but essentially 2010 
best performance of the NHS in its history in terms of public feedback and metrics. And 2023, the worst. So 13 years. Um, <laughs> it's not that long a time. So, and there are all sorts of things that have happened. Ignore COVID, that is kind of obviously compounded some certain things, but all of this was happening a long time before. But basically what's happened over that time, and I'm always aware that people think, oh, you would say that, wouldn't you? But basically the numbers of people in the population over the age of 65 have gone up by a third. Over 65s, I can see there's one or two in the audience tonight, are obviously fantastic, but you do tend to use the most of the health service. Um, numbers of hospital doctors, the acutes that Isabel's referring to, have gone up by 30%, funnily enough, matching the kind of demand rise in the population. And, you know, numbers of admissions have gone up 30%, so all of that. And so, obviously, the number of GPs has gone up by 30% to keep rise, hasn't it? No. <laughs> They've actually dropped. So, instead of going up 30%, we're down about 8%. So, where we should be would be about 40% more GPs in the country. So. The reason you read lots of stuff about not being able to see a GP anymore is because there ain't any left, more or less. Mm -hmm. So what's happened is we've, we've lost a layer of what's called medical generalism in the NHS system. And in any day of the week, there's a whole slew of people around the country who feel ill. And once upon a time, almost all of those would come to people like me and we would differentiate. So think of me not entirely flatteringly as a sieve. So, all of these people that are ill in my area come to see me on one day and I can catch most of their health needs and I can treat them, I can make sense of them, I can deal with them. And a very, very few I need to pass on to the acute sector. And I'm pretty good at spotting who needs that. If you haven't got me, if there's no capacity in general practice, it's not that the health needs go away and people go, I can't get through to the GP, no, never mind. Um, the, the needs are still there. What they do is they phone 111, my exit just try, tries to introduce some of the ideas that that's not really a sieve, or if it is, it's got massive holes. So loads goes through the 111 sieve, straight down to the hospital sector. And actually people just go to A&E as well. But um, 111 is, is kind of replacing what GPs used to do 15 years ago uh, very, very badly. And it's pushing people down to the acute sector. And the reason that matters is it costs a heck of a lot more. Um, another reason it matters is that it actually causes all sorts of inappropriate things. So there's Isabel sitting in A&E with her child who just basically needs to see me. But in fact, she's got to wait eight hours while the child kind of pulls her hair out. Um, so it's really bad. And actually, when you go to hospital, things happen to you. You get put in scanners and you get blood tests and you get given drugs and things. Um, and my brilliant trainer, when I went into general practice, said that the role of the GP is twofold. It says you've got to ensure that people who need the full might of modern medicine get it. And equally important, you've got to make sure everybody else, which is the vast majority, go nowhere near the full might of modern medicine, because <laughs> it will cause them enormous problems. So anyway, the, the very long answer, but what we need to get is rebalancing. We need the generalism back in the, in the NHS system. And once you put the sieves in, we will keep lots of stuff out of hospital. We will treat people much better. Um, but that's what we've, the key thing that we've lost, basically. Thank you so much. And both of you have done such deep thinking um, about our health service. Do you think the NHS will still exist on its 100th anniversary in 2048? Yeah, I think it will, but it depends in what form and to what extent as well. Um, and I think we need to have greater honesty about what it's not doing already and places in which it has already fallen over. Mm -hmm. 
but also uh, uh, which we're not going uh, we're not going to get greater honesty but I'll just say we need it anyway the, the greater honesty about what it can do in the future and what it should be doing can it provide claim to provide a comprehensive range of services with the current funding envelope do we need to talk about reducing those services or having higher taxation Jeremy Hunt, when he was health secretary, used to make the case at Cabinet that Conservative voters are happy to pay higher taxes if it means that they can have a healthy and safe retirement. Now, he, he may have a slightly different attitude now he's in the Treasury, but, but I think that <laughs> that's the interesting question is whether voters have a different attitude too, and that sort of goes back to my original yeah. point about are voters prepared to pay more through taxation for something they don't think they're going to get? Thank you. And mm. Phil? Uh, yeah, I think it will, actually. Um, so I also remember my trainer back in the days telling me that the health service goes through cycles, so it gets really bad. And then it gets so bad that the politicians think, crikey, we'd better do something to sort this out. And then it gets an injection of resources and things that change. Um, and he said, you know, it just goes in cycles, so when it gets bad, just remember it'll get good again. I have to say, he really, that's really trying my, my, <laughs> my belief at the moment, because I've never seen it this bad. But I, I do think that it will survive. I think it will be different. I think one of the other things we perhaps would, we could touch on a little bit more, but essentially the kinds of patients that we're, we're treating now are very, very different. Um, principally because of the success of modern medicine. It actually now keeps people alive with things that killed them when I started out. Um, so we, we have got very different patients, and actually they're patients who, once again, actually need generalist skills, and they need lower tech care. So I think the NHS in 25 years' time will be there. I can predict if it, if it is there and it's successful, it'll have a lot more of me. It'll have cottage hospitals back again, okay? Um, and they'll be able to provide kind of sort of low intensity care where the whole panoply of the DGH with all its really expensive stuff isn't required. And we will still have expensive hospitals because there will always be people for whom that kind of level of care is appropriate. And that's the challenge is can we get it rebalanced in, in the next 25 years? But if we can, it'll still be here. That's all we have time for. I'm really sorry, but thank you so much to Isabel and Phil. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Thanks. <laughs>
Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.